Hello everyone, this is Mike, otherwise known as Narrowin from the Detroit Pistons subreddit, and welcome to the third episode of the show. I'm back after about a month's hiatus here. So this show, uh, I'm going to start out by answering uh, questions asked by some of you on the subreddit, and then just go on to discuss other team-related issues, uh, some season reviews, and looking forward to this summer. So first, just starting off, uh, then some questions about my opinion on a potential Bradley Beal trade that was aired by James Edwards from The Athletic. So I'll be honest here, the prospect of the Pistons trading for Bradley Beal with what they have available for assets is really unrealistic. I get the feeling that James, uh, who's the best of the Detroit beat writers, uh, I'm getting the feeling that he's pretty aware of this and was just kind of spitballing ideas. Uh, I couldn't tell you for sure. My uh, subscription to The Athletic, unfortunately, has elapsed. Uh, for those of you who are interested in The Athletic, uh, I'll tell you it's actually a very good publication. It does have a yearly fee, and no, I'm not being paid to advertise anything. <laughs> uh, but uh, if you like sports, it's actually a, a very good resource. I was actually surprised at how good it was. Um, in any event, his idea for Beal was Luke Kennard, Langston Galloway, Reggie Jackson, the latter two just for salary matching purposes, and this year's first round pick and a future second round pick. So this basically just boils down to a couple of expiring deals, which is, you know, nothing. Uh, then after that, let's just put it this way. It boils down to Luke Kennard and a first round pick. So Luke Kennard, the number 15 uh, Bradley Beal is like a top 30 player in this league. He's an excellent scorer, can score from anywhere, uh, is great at creating his own offense, uh, can facilitate for others as well, and can play acceptable if certainly mediocre defense, but uh, that's certainly less important. Uh, so it would cost a great deal to pick up Bradley Beal, more than the Pistons have to offer. Bidding, I think, this summer if the uh, Wizards make him available, which would, they would be insane not to at this point. Uh, because they just they're not able to field a viable team at this point not with John Wall's obscenely large contract and the fact that he's going to be out for basically the entire season anyway so there will be a lot of bidders because guys like Beal uh, are rare and they're worth a lot and the Pistons don't have anything like the assets necessary uh, as far as you know going back to the offer Luke Kennard the number 15 because second round picks really something like 25 percent of second round picks actually go on to have a real NBA career. Uh, when we're talking trades, basically second round pick is, you know, here, I'm going to trade you this and you have another shot at finding somebody. Probably won't, but you know, it's worth a shot. So they're throw-ins. So that's the second round picks are really not worth very much. Now, if you get what the Bucks did, or excuse me, what the Pelicans did for Nikola Mirotic, which is four second round picks, uh, from the Bucks, then, you know, that's a pretty good deal because you got a good shot at that point at getting an actual roster player out of the bargain. So, <clears throat> pardon me, for the Pistons, it would be Kennard and number 15. Number 15, of course, you know, it's it's middle of the first round. You know, you're likely to get a decent role player out of it, uh, or maybe if you're lucky, a starter. Or maybe if you're obviously super, super lucky, you get a really good player. But, you know, it's a decent draft pick, but not really worth a ton. And Kennard... Again, I think he'll be good in this league, but uh, he's. I think it's very unlikely he'll be anything like star caliber. He should be a very solid shooter. Uh, and if the Pistons are lucky, maybe top out at something like a Lou Williams type, though highly unlikely. There are very few players who do what Lou Williams does as well as he does. As uh, you know, a very high-volume, high-efficiency six-man off the bench. Maybe Lou can do that, uh, something close to it. But again, I don't think his ceiling is 
is a star in this league. Uh, unfortunately, it just boils down to athleticism, which is a big deal, and he doesn't really have it. He'll still be good, but different stream, good and great. So that deal's really bad for the Wizards. So I really just don't see that happening. Uh, I was asked, who would I like to see the Pistons pick at 15? Uh, all I will say is a small forward. Unfortunately, for the purposes of this conversation, uh, the draft is still really nebulous what the draft order is going to be. Uh, the mocks are really all over the place. And I don't think we'll really see it solidify until maybe after the combine. Even then, uh, this draft you know, could really surprise people what happens. Fortunately, there are a good number of small forwards out there. Uh, who's actually going to be available when it comes to the Pistons uh, is anyone's guess. But basically, the Pistons just have to take a shot on somebody with a high ceiling. Uh, I'll be fully honest. I haven't started uh, researching the draft quite yet. Uh, my knowledge on it is largely cursory. Uh, but I do know there, there are a good number of good small forwards there, and some of them should be available when they drop to the Pistons. But basically, the situation is this. A small forward is extremely important. Uh, rather, it's extremely important to have a good small forward in today's NBA. Uh, for the you know your uh, small forwards, whether they're three and D or ideally guys who can create in this kind of positionless league, they can play up the power forward. Some of them can play down to shooting guard, uh, and it's it's just a super important position. The Pistons have not had anybody there since uh, well, I guess he had one season of Marcus Morris, his first season. Uh, he was actually pretty good. Uh, he was terrible in his second season, but uh, that that's you know neither here nor there. But aside from that one season, the Pistons haven't actually had a bona fide good small forward since uh, the prime years of Tayshaun Prince, so it's been a gap for a long time. Stanley Johnson, of course, was meant to fill that, uh, but that obviously didn't work out. And if you look back at that draft, he was there was no reason to pick Stanley Johnson back then, uh, which I've said for years now. <clears throat> but... You know, obviously damage is done, and the general manager who did that isn't with us anymore, fortunately. Or rather, he's not with the team. He's still alive, of course. <laughs> um, so the free agent market for small forwards is going to be awful. Uh, I, it's basically either they're way too expensive for the Pistons, or they just really aren't fit to start, and the Pistons don't have anybody else on the roster who's likely to be able to start at small forward at this point. And in any event, the Pistons just really need to shoot high because they need to find their, their small forward of the future somehow. <clears throat> I mean, it could conceivably be taking a flyer on somebody uh, in free agency, but you'd have to get real lucky. I mean, you could try to look at somebody like Kelly Oubre and hope he really improves, but even then, he might not be available for the mid-level exception. Who knows? So take a shot on a small forward. Hope he can play in his first year. Uh, and it might have to be somebody who's risky, but that's basically what you have to go with because there's no way for the Pistons to fill that hole this summer. Uh, not viably anyway, not in the starting lineup, and you don't want a repeat of what happened uh, last you know, last season. It's conceivable, <clears throat> probably unlikely, that the Pistons could bring back Reggie Bullock, who's been opening about wanting to come, open excuse me, about wanting to come back to Detroit. But again, you run into the issue of uh, Bullock really isn't a bona fide small forward. He's certainly on the smaller side. He's around uh, 200 pounds soaking wet, uh, I think 205 actually. And also he's not a guy who can create anything for you. You can't, uh, you know, he, he's in, entirely reliant on other players for uh, to create his offense for him, whether that be running around picks, taking, uh, you know, shots off of handoffs or whatever else. But, you know, he's, he's not ideally placed to 
defends even opposing small forwards, many of whom are significantly larger than he is. Uh, and, you know, in cases like switches on the power forwards, which should happen pretty frequently for any small forward, you know, forget about it. He has no chance of physically competing with them. Uh, it's possible he turns out to be the best option. And uh, just because, uh, you know, if, if the Pistons don't draft a small forward or don't feel like that small forward they draft would be ready for the NBA, or at least ready to start, hopefully be ready for the NBA in his first season, of course, but you never know. Um, then Bullock is an option. And honestly, if he's being open about, about wanting to come back to Detroit and, uh, you know, if he has done his homework or has heard the multitude of people talking about Detroit's salary cap situation, he probably knows that Detroit can't really pay very much money for him. And uh, I know this is going on a tangent, but honestly, the Pistons could probably afford him at this point. Uh, he had a a good 2017-2018 season. Uh, this last season, he had his typical, you know, just terrible early uh, season slump that has happened to him, or did happen to him, rather, all four years with the Pistons. And then he picked it up. He was pretty good, not quite as good as the year before, when uh, I believe he was number two in the league uh, in three-point percentage, but everybody with five or six attempts or higher. I don't know. Uh, I don't remember the exact statistics. So he wasn't quite as good. Uh, but then he went to the Lakers, and he was completely unremarkable. So his uh, free agency stock probably isn't particularly high at this point. Uh, the mid-level exception is uh, somewhere close to $9.5 I believe, so he could possibly be had for that. But again, not ideal, because Reggie Bullock is really more of a uh, shooting guard by uh, by figure you know just by how he's built and by how he plays also yeah also he's not particularly good at defense altogether so you can't really even call him the sort of three and d type that people look for in small forwards if those aren't guys who can create so yeah that's what i say draft a small forward uh, i really don't think there's any other position worth uh, the pistons looking at at this point maybe if they you know if uh you know if a point guard uh really just shockingly drops uh, out of you know out of nowhere to number 15 then uh maybe take him for your point guard for the point guard of the future rather because you know who knows maybe reggie jackson really gets it back next year and maybe he's you know he's finally uh gets that what was really excellent athleticism in uh you know before his injury in 2016 uh you know because he was he was a very impressive athlete at that point he could sky he was real quick and uh you know if he can get that back suddenly which is technically possible given that he has a full summer to rehab then maybe the Pistons stick with him at a lower salary uh you can't bank on that but in any event it's unlikely that uh you know the point guards who are going to go in this draft are going to go pretty high so it's unlikely that's going to happen for the Pistons and there is no reason for them to look at any other position uh center is set for at least the next two years assuming they don't find some you know they don't turn a trade for Drummond somehow uh, there are only maybe two or three centers uh, even worth looking at, and that's if you think ball ball is worthwhile, and I don't. Uh, but that's just, you know, center is not something to think about at this point. And uh, power forward, of course, you know, Blake Griffin is only ever going to play power forward because he, he really can't play small ball center. So you've got your starting power forward for 
uh, you know, the next three seasons, and the Pistons can't really afford at this point to be drafting somebody on the basis of, oh, you'll probably, you know, just play backup. You know, they, they kind of have to shoot for the moon at this point. And under no circumstances should they draft a shooting guard, even if the best player available. The Pistons uh, are in the unfortunate position of not probably not being able to be very good next season, but wanting to compete nonetheless. Uh, they're not really at all in the position, especially with, you know, you've got Blake Griffin's window. They can't really say, okay, we'll just take best player available, even if he's a shooting guard. We have about a $2 billion of already. Uh, and then just hope he develops. No, you can't do that. Uh, I think that would be a very bad idea. So, uh, yeah, I, I think even if a shooting guard drops to you uh, and you didn't expect him to be available, I think you just pretty much have to pass on him because with all the guys in the system, you know, Bruce Brown is, you know, a shooting guard, again, by, uh, you know, he's just a native shooting guard. That's what, he, that's what he's always played. Uh, he's... Not ideal for small forward because he is on the smaller side. Uh, Kyrie Thomas, of course, at 6'4", or 6'3", and three quarters in shoes, is um, not going to be playing much small forward. He's going to be playing primarily at shooting guard, probably not much point guard at all unless he improves his ball handling. Brown could technically play a little bit of point guard if he improves his handling and his shooting. Uh, you've got McCulloch, who, again, is a shooting guard who can probably play some at small forward. Dwayne Casey has talked about him maybe playing some at point guard, but who knows. And then, of course, you're stuck with Galloway for at least this season. And Kennard, who knows where they'll play him. Uh, I'm of the opinion that he could play a point guard, a backup point guard, and they should put him in a sort of Lou Williams role. But uh, it's possible they won't do that. And then he's a shooting guard, too. And, uh, again, you can play him at small forward. He's going to get murdered on defense. It's not ideal. So you just and, – and he's the only, like – slam dunk youth the Pistons have in the system so you can't just draft another shooting guard that would just be complete madness in my opinion anyway uh moving on and this overlaps a bit draft slash free agency uh and uh poster asks if I'm into speculation could I drop some realistic or wild trade ideas uh not really into speculation unfortunately <laughs> well fortunately or unfortunately unfortunately for the purposes of this question so when it comes to trade ideas uh a couple things. First off, you know, impossible to predict uh, because sometimes a team will just, you know, another team will just throw a Hail Mary, uh, if not a Hail Mary, just a, you know, you just get a really wacky decision out of another team because as much as we, like, we would like to think, you know, hey, uh, well, we'd like to think this about our own general managers, uh, though I think we know it from looking at other teams, you know, occasionally you have guys who are really, really bad at their jobs and just make stupid decisions. So, you know, maybe the Pistons could capitalize on that, but that's never something to bank on. Like the Tobias Harris trade to Detroit. Uh, that wasn't, you know, some sort of masterminds, uh, you know, operation by the Pistons. Uh, that was the magic. It was Rob Henningham was general manager of the magic, soon to be fired general manager of the magic because he was out about two months later making a horrible decision like just an awful decision and uh basically it's like oh okay well we have uh aaron gordon and he's our power forward of the future and so we just don't really have any space for tobias harris who's this really up-and-coming you know athletic you know good all-around scorer uh, on what amounted to a pretty good, you know, and also front-loaded, which was helpful 
uh, contract, actually a really good contract based on the contracts that were given out in 2016 offseason. And he's like, okay, well, we just got got to get rid of him. I'll just trade him for expiring. So that was one of the dumbest trades uh, in the last decade, easily. So uh, that can happen. You just can't count on it. And the Pistons just don't really have much in the way of assets to swing trades. Uh, the way I look at it, the assets the Pistons have are current and future draft picks, of course. Uh, ideally, not trading those away uh, because the Pistons, I mean, it's it's good to have <laughs> promising youth on good contracts. Um, you know, it's not worth those trading trading those away unless you're really really getting a good bargain in a trade. Uh, Luke Kennard, of course, is an asset, one that the Pistons probably can't afford to lose. He's got two more years in a very affordable deal, but uh, you know, also he's uh, he's the biggest aspect of the youth movement in Detroit, uh, and he could be pretty darn good in the you know pretty good. I'd say pretty darn good, but he'll be pretty good in this league uh, if he if he develops as as uh, we all hope and as the organization hopes. Uh, Bruce Brown, throw in. Uh, he's got potential. Kyrie Thomas has potential. You got a lot of second round picks who had a ton of potential and ended up playing in Europe because they couldn't cut it in the NBA. Those guys don't have any trade value. Uh, same with McCulloch. Again, when I say don't have any, I mean they have minimal trade value. They're not going to play a significant role in a trade for a good player, uh, unless somebody from another, you know, unless a general manager from another organization just really likes them. And uh, I don't think that's the really. It's it's possible, really not very likely. And uh, beyond that, the Pistons don't really have much of anything uh, as far as trade assets go. Uh, Griffin, they could probably swing to another team, but that's kind of out of the question at this point. It's not really even worth talking about. Uh, Reggie Jackson, of course, nobody's likely to want at that salary. Um, I mean, I know he's an expiring deal, but uh, you know, you, you got to be able to fit people in under the cap. Also, he's just not really a, a very attractive commodity, and also the Pistons would have to get a point guard back. Uh, that's unlikely to happen. Um, you know, you have John Lure and Langston Galloway, of course. Lure's on a terrible contract. Galloway's on a bad contract. Uh, just for the record, because uh, I've seen a lot of talk about this, expiring deals are not inherently valuable. Uh, other teams don't look at them and say, oh boy, an expiring deal. I want to trade assets for that uh, because that's just not the case. Uh, where expiring contracts are valuable is, number one, if you want to take back a bad contract from somebody else. And uh, maybe they'll throw in some assets on top of that. That's one uh, place in which expiring contracts are good. It allows them to get out of a bad, out of a bad contract for which they'll pay. And uh, beyond that, uh, maybe uh, when it comes to the trade deadline, things can be different. Uh, in the offseason, it's extremely rare you'll see somebody trade a player just for expirings. I cannot think of that you know, a case of that in, in the recent past. The only time I've seen a, a team just actively say, okay, we'll trade such and such for an expiring contract was for Brendan Haywood back in 2015, and that's because his deal was non-guaranteed. So they're basically trading for cap space. Uh, and they got a trade exception out of that. Uh, I think the Cavaliers did it. I can't remember in particular. But uh, when it comes to trade deadline, it's a different story. Uh, you have teams saying, uh, okay, well, this current roster isn't working. Uh, time to rebuild, and cool. Maybe we, you know, in that case, it's like great. We can trade away uh, this contract we don't want. It might not be a bad contract, but it's you know, it's just we want to get rid of this relatively pricey player who's on a multi-year deal. And okay, so in in return, we'll take 
uh, expiring deals and you know a, a modest payment on top of that, or if it's a really good player, then uh, you know on a high salary, then cool, those expiring deals let you match that salary or come close to it, you know as close as you need to. So that's where expiring deals are useful. This summer, expiring deals are not going to be very useful unless a team uh, just has a, you know, you're not going to give you a player, uh, you know, through use of your expiring contracts this summer. Very unlikely. And it's just going back to what I said, the point of this is that they're not inherently valuable. And uh, in the offseason, even if the Pistons find some way to use them, it'll just be because they're available uh, to help with uh, salary matching, not because other teams are going to jump at the chance to take on expiring deals. So uh, I, I would say uh, Bluer, of course, is going nowhere. Uh, it's just a horrible contract. Uh, you know, there's only one year left on it, fortunately, but nobody's, you know, obviously nobody's going to be interested in that contract straight up over the summer. Um, Galloway, it's conceivable the Pistons could trade him for a, another suboptimal contract uh, at a position they need more help with. Uh, such as, you know, possibly backup center. Uh, though, here's the thing with backup center, and I'll just say this, uh, you know, I'll just I'll, I'll repeat it when I come to free agent stuff, but it's hard to tell what the Pistons are going to do with Thon Maker. I mean, they traded for this guy. Uh, he doesn't really fit at power forward. Is he just not built for it? Uh, he was drafted as a center. He played all of his minutes, pretty much, uh, for the bucks at center so the Pistons traded for him it's like okay well what the hell are you going to do with him you know you're really looking for another backup center where is Thon Maker fitting into this uh, so who knows it's tough to say with that <clears throat> but uh, who knows maybe they can trade Galloway for somebody else on a single or multi-year deal to position that just you know the Pistons need help at uh, so obviously there's the two most notorious contracts out of the way um, Drummond, I know a lot of people want him gone. Uh, it's going to be tough to trade Drummond because he is very overpaid. Even when he's playing at his best, he's pretty overpaid. I mean, he doesn't play at his best very much. He had a period of doing so this season, uh, you know, that coincided with the Pistons, uh, having that hot stretch, you know, we can say it with the proviso. Yes, largely it was against very bad teams, but, uh, and also it spawned the narrative that Drummond carried the team in the second half of the season. That wasn't really true. Uh, his hot stretch coincided with the Pistons, uh, particularly Kennard, Galloway, and Jackson, and ultimately Ellington as well, uh, just shooting an un unsustainable percentage from three. Maybe for Luke, 42% is possible, but for Jackson, Mike close to 50%, for Galloway, 47%. Uh, you know, it just all happened at once, and Drummond did really well during that period. Give him credit. Uh, he was doing what was necessary in order for him to have the maximum positive impact, which is, number one, work hard at all times. Number two, play within himself, within his talents, and not try to do stuff he's bad at. Uh, number three, play within his role, which is basically the same as number two. And um, number four, play a team game, which I guess goes within, you know, playing within himself and playing within his role. And just not doing shit that is bad for the team, which he has a really bad habit of doing, like his his annoying isolations and uh, his putbacks through, you know, multiple, you know, multiple uh, multiple coverage, and he's not good at those even necessarily through single coverage. So, uh, and then he regressed along with the rest of the team uh, down the stretch uh, when the Pistons almost flamed out of the playoffs altogether. 
<clears throat> so uh, here's the issue with Drummond's. Uh, traditional centers are a dying breed, really. The NBA is all about shooting. It's all about offense now. Guys who can't, who, who can't space the floor come with a cost uh, because spacing is huge. Guys who can't create offense, which is basically every traditional center, uh, that's also a big problem. So in order to be worthwhile as a traditional big and to give back what you lose a team uh, on offense in terms of that spacing, in terms of that offensive creation, uh, and this is very, very much an offense first league, uh, just by its nature and even more so this season uh, because of the rule changes. Scoring is higher than ever and just the rules favor offense. So if you, in order for any traditional center to give back enough on the floor to, to compensate for what they're losing on offense on a high salary, uh, they've got to be good at four things. Number one is paint offense. you got to be a really efficient paint scorer. Uh, number two is rebounding. Of course, you got to be a really good rebounder. Number three, uh, you've got to be an excellent defender. You just have to be. And number four, you've got to be a hard work guy, you're a hard working guy. You got to hustle. You know, you just you have to do that. Uh, it's it's a way for any player to maximize his value on the court, but particularly for a center, uh, particularly for a center who can't shoot. So if you're being paid a high salary, you would best be good at all of those things and very good at all of those things in order to actually have anything like your salary value on the court. Now, the only traditional center in the league who fits that criteria, those criteria rather, is Rudy Gobert, who is excellent at all of them. Uh, he's a game-changing defender. Uh, he is perennially extremely efficient as a scorer. Uh, he's super hardworking, and, uh, and he's an excellent rebounder. Uh, you know, the other guys you have around max salary territory, Whiteside, Drummonds, and Adams, and all of them are overpaid. Whiteside, of course, is the most overpaid of them all, but Drummond and Adams are overpaid as well. Uh, and Drummonds, when he's not playing at his best, is extremely overpaid uh, because in that instance, you have a guy who, number one, isn't working hard, <laughs> often kind of checks out and is, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes beyond just the raw stat sheet. People look at uh, people look at the average player and say, okay, well, this player put up like 20 and 10 or 20 and 20. Uh, for the average player, it's like, okay, that guy played pretty well because your average player is working hard on a nightly basis. Uh, for Drummond, it doesn't necessarily mean that because he can put up those stats uh, by scoring those points and by grabbing those rebounds, but he's not really actually working hard uh, anywhere else. And, uh, you know, I know it's been brought up by some people, oh, you know, Drummond's only, you know, he's, he's statistically comparable to Hakeem Olajuwon in terms of his points, rebounds, blocks, and steals. It's like, okay, well, does that mean that Drummond is as good or anywhere near as good as Hakeem Olajuwon? The answer is no. Those of you who are familiar with Olajuwon know that he was one of the greatest of all time, and Drummond doesn't even hold a candle to him. So no, it doesn't suggest that the two of them are comparable. It suggests, or it's a reminder that a great deal uh, more than just raw stats goes into somebody's effectiveness on the court. Uh, and, uh, you know, as far as those those things off the stat sheet or off the immediate stat sheet, uh, Olajuwon was excellent at pretty much all of them, and Drummond's, even on his best night, is not necessarily the case. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> yeah, so Drummond, uh, just, I almost kind of forget where I got started on this. Uh, basically, Drummond's uh, on his bad nights uh, can, you know, is just heinously overpaid. 
and uh, on his good nights is only somewhat overpaid. But unfortunately, his bad nights uh, significantly outweigh his good nights. People were saying, okay, maybe he turned a corner this season. Like I said, that corner was largely just hard work and attitude. He had a stretch like that uh, last season as well. It didn't last. It didn't last in this season either. Uh, he, he fell off down the stretch. Uh, that you know that increased work ethic and just better attitude fell off down the stretch, and then it was nowhere during the playoffs. It completely evaporated against Milwaukee. He had just an absolutely horrible series. Like, my goodness, it was awful. Like, there was, there was no redeeming quality about it. He was just absolutely heinously bad. <clears throat> so, there's your trouble with Drummond. Basically, uh, he's, he's very overpaid. And uh, traditional centers are, you know, just progressively depreciating in value. Uh, there aren't really all that many of them left in the league. And uh, the ones that got overpaid, pretty much all got overpaid in 2016 when just a, a stupid amount of, amount of money was just thrown at everybody. I mean, you have guys like Mozgov, uh, Mahimi, Tristan Thompson, uh, Bismack Biombo. Uh, those are some other highly paid traditional centers. And of course, they're all considered brutally overpaid, and that's true. Uh, but you're just very... My, my point at the end of this tangent, or this end of this long whatever it is I'm doing is just you're unlikely to find a taker for Drummond who's actually going to give you value because you know what uh, they he just he's just not worth that and they'd rather find a guy who can shoot even if you take a guy who can't shoot uh, you can find a guy who does 75% of what Drummond can for half the price or less and there's also that center is the position teams can most afford to shirk in today's NBA if you have good guys at the other four positions, then you can just pay small dollars to a center and you're just fine. It's really, 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 really only worth paying big money to a center if he's a game-changing presence. And aside from Gobert, traditional bigs just can't do that anymore. Your game-changing presence is, you're talking, uh, well, it's pretty much guys who can change the game on offense. So you're talking guys like uh, Anthony Davis, uh, Joel Embiid. Those two are excellent two-way players. Carl Anthony Towns, uh, excellent on offense. Jokic, excellent on offense. And uh, to a lesser extent, uh, Al Horford, who's just a really good all-around player, but is really kind of starting to show his age and is paid a whole lot of money. So unlikely you move Drummond, unless, as noted, you get very you know, strange thinking. Uh, GM from another team who just decides he really wants him, but I can't think of anybody who uh, who would fit that bill. You could say teams that really flame out in free agency, uh, you know, because there will be a few. Uh, there are some teams that have cleared Max uh, a bunch of space to take on uh, Max deals, you know, because you get a lot of guys uh, who will draw Max salaries who are going to come onto the markets this summer. And you might say, okay, maybe one of them who really, you know, just strikes out will take a, a risk on Drummond. I doubt it. You know, that's just not a risk that it really behooves any team to take at this point. Uh, that's a lot of money. And you can be all but certain he will uh, take up his player option for uh, the 2020-2021 season because uh, it's just, unless the guy just, uh, you know, makes tremendous progress next season, it's incredibly unlikely he'll see that amount of money on an annual basis uh, after this contract. So he's almost certainly with, uh, you know... He's almost, you know, he's functionally speaking, he's got two years left on his deal. So uh, I wouldn't expect to see Drummond moved. And, uh, you know, then after that, you know, there's really not much of anybody else left on the roster. 
uh, to, you know, maybe I'm missing somebody, but I don't think there's really anybody left on the roster. I think I got to everyone. So <clears throat> uh, back to the original part of the question, just trade is very unlikely. So when it comes to the offseason, uh, as I said, I think you just need to draft a small forward because you're incredibly unlikely to find somebody who's going to be worth signing for the, uh, you know, with just with the MLE. The MLE, like I said, is about nine and a half million. Uh, so I, I just don't see that happening. So you just kind of have to take a shot on a small forward on the draft. When it comes to point guard, it gets more interesting. Like I said, I think Luke Kennard could do it. I think 100% you let Ish Smith go, uh, just regardless of anything else. The guy just doesn't fit on the team anymore. Uh, his lack of shooting is a big problem. Uh, basically, just forces forces excuse me the other uh, the team to uh, his team, rather whoever's on the floor with him to march to his tune. Uh, and, you know, I won't go on about that. I talked, I talked about this, uh, you know, on my last two podcasts. I just think, I think it's absolutely necessary to let him go. Now, how do you replace him? Uh, the Pistons, again, possible Luke Kennard. I think he could do it. Uh, he's, he's an excellent shooter. Uh, he's a good playmaker. He draws a lot of attention. Uh, he's, he was pretty good on the pick and roll, uh, this season. And he really thrives on, involvement and volume and having an offense run around him <clears throat> and that's what you have to do if you want to get the most out of him so i think he could do really well at backup point guard only downside there is that asking him to step into uh the starting point guard role should there be an injury to reggie jackson uh or whoever's starting point guard next season almost positive it's gonna be reggie jackson uh then it's a different story for luke because he'll get obliterated by uh, by a lot of the point guards on, on defense rather by a lot of the point guards i'll have to play against uh that's just the um, the defensive issue is just another compelling reason to keep him on the bench because Luke, just by nature of what's not very good athleticism and a very small wingspan, is probably always just always going to struggle on defense. So he's an option. Uh, the Pistons might feel like they have some options with uh, Svi Mikaljuk, who, again, Dwayne Casey said, oh, you know, his future is a point guard. Uh, maybe Kyrie Thomas, if he can improve on that end. Uh, he's just not a good ball handler at this point. Uh, maybe Bruce Brown. He has potential if he can learn to shoot. But uh, so it's tough to say. Uh, it's just looking at all those options. Do you really want to spend a bunch of money on a backup point guard? And if you do, who are you going to spend that money on? Now, I'll say what I said in, uh, I think it was the last podcast, that it's really tough to tell uh, what the market is going to be this summer. Uh, you're going to see uh, the market's going to get set in your first day with how much is paid to each tier of player, obviously max free agents, you know, the guys you're looking at max free agents, Kawhi Leonard, Kemba Walker, and so on and so forth. Those guys are going to get max deals. That's a foregone conclusion. But beyond that, you got the upper middle guys. Uh, and then for the, you know, for the sake of the Pistons, you got kind of the lower middle guys who can be, uh, who can be afforded with the MLE. So, uh, you know, could potentially be guys like Derek Rose. Well, Derek Rose can be half of the MLE regardless. I mean, that's, that's just kind of without question. Uh, Guys, are you going to be able to get a guy like Patrick Beverly with the MLE? Uh, maybe. Would he come to Detroit? That's a different story. Uh, you know, I know, um, I know there will be other teams really bidding for him, uh, and probably the Clippers will try to keep him. Uh, will Darren Collison be available or be uh, be keepable for the MLE? Who knows? Or be gettable rather for the MLE? Who knows? Doubt he'll leave Indiana. And uh, beyond that, you just kind of go down the list, and it's not particularly interesting. Do you want to take a chance on Jeremy Lin, who was good with the Hawks but terrible at the Raptors? I mean, I guess maybe. Um, <clears throat> uh, you could look at Corey Joseph, but uh, not the greatest three-point shooter. Uh, there's Seth Curry, I know, has come up in talks, but 
uh, again, these guys are going to take up like a great deal of the mid-level exception. Um, you know, if you really feel like point guard is a need and you're drafting a small forward and you feel like McCullough can really fill in his backup small forward, then okay, cool. Uh, you know, I guess you can spend that money at, uh, at point guard if, if it really suits you. Though, again, I'd really rather play Kennard there, especially because it'll free up that shooting guard quite a bit. But i got to stop, you know, I'll just stop repeating that at this point. Um, <clears throat> Seth Curry, again, assuming he uh, doesn't get uh, an offer to stay in Portland. Uh, you know, somebody made the good point. Uh, they quoted an, an NBA agent. I don't remember. I think it was, uh, I don't remember who did it, uh, who said this, but it's basically, do you think Seth Curry is going to look uh, at, at the, the Pistons payroll and see Langston Galloway and say, oh, I'm going to take less money than that? I mean, who knows? Maybe it's not a guy who, who's really going to care about that, but you can expect him to cost uh, something in the, at least $7 million uh, annually because, you know what? He's a really good three-point shooter, and really good three-point shooters are really valuable in this league. So, again, tough to say at point guard exactly what the Pistons are going to do. Uh, like I said before, center, who knows what the hell they're going to do there. Uh, if, I, if it were me, I would not wager much on Thon Maker. Uh, he could turn out to be pretty darn good. I mean, pretty darn good on the backup center scale of things. Sure, he's a hustle guy without a doubt. Um, <clears throat> he's uh, definitely got potential as a rim protector. And, you know, if he can stretch the floor, great. Uh, he really hasn't been able to get himself to that point yet. But... Here's trouble with the guy, um, you know, no particular order. You have no idea how old he is. A, 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 you know, big um, big deal was made around this, uh, about this rather, around uh, the 2016 draft uh, when it came to light that, hey, Thon Maker may be four years older than we think he is. So Maker at this stage could be like 25, 26 years old, at which point you're saying, okay, well, instead of like 22, I think, I believe, uh, people think he is right now, uh, maybe 23. You know, when you're starting to get really in your mid-20s, it's like, all right, well, maybe it's, you know, he doesn't really have quite that much room for growth left, and certainly he's not telling what his age is. So there's that. There's the fact that he is terrible as an interior scorer. Uh, that's a problem. He's just completely awful as a paint scorer. He has no polish, uh, really, if, unless you're counting his three-point shot, which you shouldn't because he is not a good three-point shooter. Uh, he has no offensive polish at all. And uh, just how thin he is means that he's, he struggles to really physically compete offensively in the paint. It also means he struggles to compete uh, physically uh, defensively as well. If he's going up against some of the, uh, the larger centers or power forwards in the league, he gets bullied. So Thon Maker's kind of a guy uh, who... Is uh, you know he's got potential. Maybe he could be good, but you never know. I would really hedge my bets if I were the Pistons, and that means spending some money on backup centers. Now, the question is, you know, who who are you looking at as backup center? Um, you know, you could look at the guy like Thomas Bryant. Maybe he was pretty good for the Wizards. Uh, you know, is you know was he you know was it something he can replicate? Who knows? Uh, but he was good. Um, Maybe Ed Davis, who knows? He was a really good backup center. Uh, he's a guy you'll have to pay out, to, you know, to pay probably more than the Pistons would like, the middle-level exception, because he'll be expensive. Uh, JaVale McGee, I guess, maybe. Probably stick with the Lakers. Uh, you know, <laughs> after all, they did trade away Ivica Zubac uh, to make him happy, uh, by all accounts. 
Uh, and Dwayne Dedman, maybe. I mean, that would be great. He'd be a really good fit with, with Blake. Uh, but again, who knows uh, how much he'll cost. I mean, he, he's the ideal fit with, with Griffin, actually. Uh, Griffin needs a center alongside him who can uh, stretch the floor and protect the rim. Uh, because, you know, that gives one extra guy for Griffin to pass to uh, when he's in the post. Excuse the snivel, sorry, it's allergy season. So it gives Griffin one extra guy to pass to, and also Griffin's a really bad rim protector, so having a guy who can do that is really nice. Uh, the issue, you know, one issue of the fit between him and Drummond is that uh, Drummond's presence around the basket means uh, one more defender in the paint for Griffin to deal with. And one less guy around the perimeter for Griffin to pass to. And, uh, you know, that's one issue is that that's really the, the kind of center Griffin needs is going to need to be, uh, you know, able to, for ideal for him, is going to need to uh, stretch the floor. And that's kind of the new archetype for centers, that they'll be able to stretch the floor and defend the rim. But it's not really super easy to find a guy on the market who can do that right now. But that those are centers of the future, guys who can do that. And then finally, on to backup power forward. Now, this is a need that I think people are really understating, and that's because the Pistons got such great health with Blake Griffin last season. He played 75 games. It's the most he's played in five seasons, and only four of those were actually absences due to injury. Three of them were due to load management, and honestly, those probably could have been avoided if Dwayne Casey had not relied on him quite so much. Unfortunately, a lot of his offense was here. Blake take the ball and do something, you know, didn't do something good with it. And a lot of the time, that meant Griffin making things happen in the post and, and taking quite a bit of a beating. Uh, also, Casey played him a lot of unnecessary minutes in games that were already won or already lost. But I digress. The Pistons shouldn't bank on Griffin being that healthy. They shouldn't. You, know, you should never bank on any starter being that healthy, uh, but particularly a guy like Griffin who's got pre-existing injury issues. So you really got to look at, uh, at a backup power forward who can fill in either when Griffin is out due to injury or when he just needs a rest. So a few guys to look at. Number one is Anthony Tolliver. Of course, every Pistons fan knows Anthony Tolliver. He's a fan favorite you know, for good reason. Super hard worker. He can stretch the floor. He's a solid defender. In his last season in Detroit, he also developed a little bit of a drive game. Uh, and he left Detroit last summer because the Pistons just didn't want uh, to pay him what he was looking for. Uh, they really needed to. Uh, they chose to, and I think this is a good idea. Look at... Uh, depth at small forward uh, because they were concerned about Stanley Johnson's ability to fill that. It turned out to be accurate. Unfortunately, they signed Glenn Robinson. The guy they signed, rather, was Glenn Robinson, didn't pan out either. But in any event, Tolliver went over there for about, I think, $5.5 million for the season. He did fairly well off the bench. Then they traded for Dario Saric. He became the starter. Tolliver was bumped to third string. So he'll probably be looking to, to leave Minnesota, and I doubt they'll even try to keep him. So he loved playing in Detroit. And he'd be great for the Pistons because he can fill, as, fill in as a starter. He's also, you know, in addition to, to his other good qualities, he's a great veteran leader, which is something the Pistons uh, certainly still need. He could probably be had, or possibly be had, for the veteran minimum, uh, certainly for the biannual exception, which is about $3.6 million. So he's one option. Another guy to look at if he is unavailable or for some reason the Pistons just choose to pass on that option is Jeff Green. Now, Jeff Green is the definition of nothing special, but he's able enough playing certainly as a backup, but also 
uh, you know, he can fill in his starter in a pinch and do a decent job of it. He's also a combo forward who can play some minutes at small forward, and that could be valuable. Another guy to look at possibly is Jamichael Green. Uh, he can stretch the floor. He's a decent defender, and uh, he could fill in for some minutes at center if necessary, though that's probably not going to be quite as big a deal for the Pistons. Now, I would like to actually have been able to predict whom the Pistons will sign, what the organization's offseason plan will be, but there are a couple of factors that make that impossible. Number one is lack of knowledge of what the market will look like. I've mentioned this before, that it's just impossible to tell what salaries uh, will look like come the beginning of the offseason. The first day will really set the trend for what players uh, at whatever particular value will be paid. You know, how much just a decent veteran, a depth veteran is going to go for, how much, you know, a middle-of-the-line guy is going to go for. It's really hard to tell because this is the first offseason since 2016 in which a good number of teams will have a fair number of cap space. So really we could see, uh, as I've said before, we could see teams really, especially those who strike out in max free agents, because a lot of teams have cleared cap space for that purpose for uh, you know, the opportunity to sign some of the marquee free agents coming in the market this summer. Some of them might strike out and start severely overpaying people, for example, which would be a very bad thing for the Pistons because then the price point would rise for any, you know, given sort of player and the Pistons don't really have much to work with. So that makes it very unpredictable as far as what the Pistons will be able to afford. We won't really see what the price points on the market are until the first day of free agency, which, by the way, is now instead of... July 1st, it's now uh, 6 p.m. Eastern, I believe, on the final day of June. That's the day that teams are able to begin talking to free agents. So that's just a minor change. Uh, <laughs> I guess it uh, it saved teams the trouble of being up all night and players. So in any event, yeah, the market is the is the first confounding factor that makes predict uh, excuse me predictions difficult. So the second, of course, is what the front office will choose to do, because in this offseason, they once again don't have very much to deal with Uh, as far as cap space goes. They have more than they had last offseason when really all they could do was make a few, you know, they signed a couple of minimum contracts with Julian Calderon and then uh, I think, you know, about $4 million to Glenn Robinson. And that was really it. That was all they could do. They have significantly more space under the luxury tax line. So they could use uh, both uh, the full mid-level exception of $9.25 million and the, uh, excuse me, the biannual exception, uh, which is, as it sounds, biannual. Uh, the Pistons used it last two years ago, so they have it again now, $3.6 million. So they have that, and they have space for a couple of minimum contracts, which count for, uh, you know, if they were to use both exceptions, they would have space then after that and after the draft picks, after paying, uh, you know, signing. Uh, presumably the Pistons will keep their two draft picks after signing those. They would have room for another couple of uh, minimum contracts under the luxury tax line. So that's not very much to deal with. You know, getting a good player these days, like a, a legitimately uh, legitimate impact player, uh, will usually cost you in the double-digit millions. You can get somebody decent for uh, the mid-level exception for about $9 million. Uh, but you're probably, for a good player, going to have to spend that full $9 million. 
So the Pistons, unfortunately, at this point, are still dealing with the detritus that Stan Van Gundy left. Uh, the roster is still in a very awkward position, and the Pistons, uh, as I've enumerated, have a lot of needs to fill. So they're really going to need to decide which is the priority need, and that, too, makes it very difficult. Are they going to say, man, we really, really need a, a good backup power forward, uh, and you know we're willing to pay for that? Or do we really need a good backup center, and we have to pay for, we're going to pay for that, and who knows? Uh, I don't think that's likely, but who knows? Uh, and... Or will they say, man, you know, because you know, I think they'll let Ish go, and I really hope they do. They say, oh, we really need a new backup point guard. Uh, you know, because that, however, would come at the cost of probably pushing out one of the young guys, you know, because we have three young guards in, in Brown, Kennard, and Thomas. And if you, you know, you could conceivably, one of them could grow to play that backup point guard role. Kennard, in my opinion, is ready. But if they think, no, he's not ready, and we want some injury insurance for Reggie Jackson, okay, maybe you sign somebody. The trouble is, again, you can't really get anybody really all that great at $9 million for backup point guard. But who knows? I could be wrong. Maybe Darren Collison is, you know, can be had at that price, you know, and, and, and that would be good. But uh, it's just so hard to tell uh, what the front office will prioritize. So I'll just wrap all this up by saying that I would not expect this to be a very significant offseason for the Pistons unless they manage to strike gold in the draft. The front office just has very, very little to work with as far as cap flexibility is not really any in any position to swing any significant trades and they're going to be looking forward to the 2020 offseason which is when they'll really have the opportunity to remake the roster and in keeping with that if they have to make the choice between really overpaying somebody or just paying somebody less for a single year i think they're going to go with option number two just to maintain maximum flexibility for next summer we've reached about 50 minutes so i'm going to finish here Next week's episode, we look further into Andre Drummond's his strengths, weaknesses, value, what he means to the Pistons. And after that, an evaluation of Dwayne Casey's first season with the Pistons. Thanks for listening.